It's a chilly evening on the 23rd of December, 1888, in the French town of Arles. There has recently been an escape of a murderer who is somewhere on the loose. Always quiet, when out of the silence, a heated argument kicks off in the yellow house. The two men inside are surrounded by paintings and are hurling insults at each other. One is a scrawny, scraggly dressed, red-headed man. The other is well-dressed, with a prominent nose and moustache. The shouting gets louder and louder, until the well-dressed man says he's leaving and he's never coming back. He slammed the door behind him and escaped into the quiet of the night. Not long after, the red-headed man runs out of the house, newspaper in hand, frantically searching and shouting for the other. Finally, not far from the yellow house, the red-headed man catches up with the other and asks if he's really going to leave. Yes. Without a word, the red-headed man hands the newspaper over and points out an article about the murderer on the loose and runs off into the night. Back at the yellow house, the red-headed man paces furious at his friend's abandonment when all of a sudden it comes to him. I know exactly how to get back at him. I know how to make him feel the pain of his abandonment. I'll cut off my own ear. That'll show him. He goes upstairs to the bathroom, pulls out a razor blade, and stares at the manic look on his face in the small, dirty mirror. And then, with a moment's hesitation, he hacks away at his left ear, blood going everywhere. There was so much more than he imagined. After hacking away for several minutes, his ear comes loose. He can't even see what he looks like because of the blood covering the mirror. The man was Vincent van Gogh, an artist who today is as famous for his madness as he is for his art. Vincent van Gogh is today one of the most popular and widely admired painters of all time. Among the list of the most expensive paintings ever sold, Van Gogh's works are some of the most numerous. Throughout his lifetime, he produced an outstanding number of pieces. It is estimated that he created over 2,000 works of art. Some of these are the most recognisable works in the world. Almost everyone associates the name Van Gogh with sunflowers. His starry night is an icon of Western art. Van Gogh had a hard life. Despite today being one of the best-selling painters of all time, during his lifetime, we believe he only managed to sell a single painting. He spent the vast majority of his life financially dependent on his brother Theo, and the two had a close relationship that lasted their entire lives. As we will learn throughout this podcast, Vincent suffered setback after setback, failure after failure, from love lost to failed career paths. Vincent's life was nothing if not difficult. 
The strain of his life led to admittance to a mental asylum. His madness and his suffering with mental illness contributed to his fame as an artist. Perhaps most well known is his cutting off his own ear after a fight with his friend and fellow painter Paul Gauguin. Today, this is one of the canon stories of Western art. Van Gogh's apparent suicide at the age of 37 in 1890, along with his financial difficulties and mental health struggles, has contributed to the enduring idea of Vincent as the tortured genius, whose art showed the beauty of life despite his overwhelming suffering. Hi, I'm Shane Lee, and this is the Enduring Lives podcast where we explore the lives and enduring legacies of the world's most extraordinary people. In this episode, we are exploring the life of Vincent van Gogh. If you want to find all the previous episodes of the podcast, or if you want to see the show notes with sources for this episode, head over to EnduringLives.com. And if you have five minutes to let us know what you think by leaving a review of the podcast wherever you're listening, please do. It would really help the show. Join me as we explore the enduring life of Vincent van Gogh. A quick note on the pronunciation of Van Gogh. There are a number of different ways people pronounce the name Van Gogh and there is some debate about how Van Gogh would have pronounced it. You may have heard Van Gogh, Van Gogh or Van Gogh. Throughout this episode I'll be using Van Gogh. Vincent Van Gogh was born on the 30th of March 1853 in the town of Zundert in the Netherlands. He was the son of a Protestant pastor called Theodorus, and his mother was called Anna. The Van Goghs were an affluent family. While Theodorus did not have an excessively high salary from the church, he and his family were provided with a house, a gardener, two cooks, and a maid. Vincent had two brothers and three sisters. The most famous of these was his brother Theo. Theo and Vincent would stay close their entire lives and would end up buried next to each other in the same cemetery. Their continual correspondence throughout their letters is one of the primary sources of information we have about Vincent's life. Vincent was described as an introverted child with wild red hair and dense freckles. He was nervous around visitors at his home in Zundert and would often escape to his attic room shortly after they arrived. Many of these visitors thought the young Vincent was a strange boy. Before the age of seven, Vincent was educated at home by a governess with oversight from his mother. The children in the Van Gogh household were taught that idleness was to be avoided and the need to constantly be doing something was instilled into them from a young age. When Vincent learned to write, he wrote with a furious speed that mirrored his mother's writing style. This ferocious approach to life and creating would stick with him his whole life and translate 
into his painting style when he was older. Anna van Gogh wanted her children's education to include the arts. Everyone took singing lessons including Vincent, and Anna taught them all to draw. She would make Vincent copy and trace down her own drawings to help him learn, and Vincent would also draw the things around him. Some of these early childhood works still exist today. For example, the drawing called Barn and Farmhouse, which Vincent drew aged 11 in 1864 for his father's birthday. The young Vincent developed a notorious temper and had a reputation for being difficult to handle. His father said that Vincent would find a way to do things that led to the most difficulties. The family maid described Vincent as the least pleasant of his siblings. And Vincent was punished as a consequence of his increasingly difficult behaviour, much more than any of them. Vincent early on appeared to yearn for approval, particularly from his mother. But twinned with this were his feelings of rejection and isolation. It would appear that Vincent would isolate himself by taking long walks alone, often at night and often in storms. This habit of taking long walks alone would stick with Vincent his whole life. In 1860, homeschooling for Vincent stopped and he was sent to the village school. His mother and father thought that Vincent would do well at school and that his behaviour would be ironed out by the strict schoolmaster, Jan Dirks. It was not. Jan Dirks would beat children who misbehaved. Vincent was frequently on the receiving end of these beatings and of boxing of the ears. Instead of making Vincent behave, it simply made him skip school. Shortly after starting his second year at school in 1861, aged eight, Vincent was pulled from school by his parents. His behaviour wasn't improved by the school. Anna van Gogh blamed the mingling with the peasant boys that would have occurred at the school. His parents attempted again to homeschool him, and they hired a governess for the task. For the next three years, this attempt to educate and control the young Vincent limped on. But in 1864, when Vincent was 11, his parents decided that the only solution was to send Vincent to a boarding school, Jan Provli's school in Zevenberg, and this was over 20 kilometres from Zundert. The move to Jan Provli's school appears to have had a profound psychological impact on the young Van Gogh. His earlier feelings of isolation, rejection and abandonment were exacerbated by this move. He would later lament that he learned absolutely nothing during his time at this school. It wasn't long before his parents decided that Vincent should leave this school, but to Vincent's dismay, it wasn't to come home. Instead, they were going to move him to a different school. We don't know why his parents decided in 1866 to move Vincent, but one possible factor was likely the cost. The King William II school in Tilbury was far cheaper than Jan Provley school. This school featured long lessons in languages including French, German, English and of course Dutch. But it also had four hours of drawing lessons each week. But later letters from Vincent would indicate that he took little of this on board as he lamented not being taught the rules of perspective in his youth. We don't know much about the two years that Vincent spent at this school. 
it was far away from home. And we know that at the end of his infrequent trips home, he felt homesick. It's likely that Vincent's feelings of abandonment and isolation continued throughout his time at the King William II school. As in the March of 1868, shortly before turning 15, and only a few months before the end of the school term, Vincent walked out of the school for good. He was headed home. We don't know if he took the train or if he walked the seven-hour journey. And we also don't know what happened when he returned home. It's doubtful that his parents were pleased by his decision. Over a year and a half later, Vincent's uncle sent who was wealthy and was a partner at Goupil and C, an art dealer and auction house in The Hague, offered Vincent a job. Vincent took to his new job with a frantic determination. This job exposed Vincent to art, and he started to take more of an interest in art and art history. He read many books on the topics, and started to spend time viewing paintings at the Dutch Royal Collection. Vincent worked himself up from the stockroom of the art dealer to the front room, where he could deal with clients, and after a few years, Vincent was trusted and experienced enough to deal with the company's top customers. But Vincent was not happy. He would later recall that his time in The Hague was a miserable time. Some have attributed this to loneliness, as the long hours would have not led to much socialising. During these first years in The Hague, Vincent also felt the pangs of unrequited love. He appears to have fallen in love with a blonde girl called Caroline Heyenbeck. Shortly after Vincent became aware of her, however, did she announce her engagement to another man. Vincent wrote to Theo about this. He said, If I can't get a good woman, I shall take a bad one. And he promptly started his lifelong habit of visiting prostitutes. For a time, Vincent reported being happier in The Hague than he was in his first years. But it wasn't to last. Somehow or another, Vincent's habit of visiting brothels came to the attention of his boss and his parents. This threatened Vincent's job, and this was at a time when his family was in need of the money, especially as Vincent was due to be drafted by the military. At the time, Wealthy people who were drafted for the military could pay for a replacement to go in their place. Vincent's father arranged for a replacement for him, but it did not come cheap. As a consequence, in January 1873, this need for money led Vincent's parents to take his then 15-year-old brother out of school and send him to work. Theo also got a job at Goupil and C, but at the Brussels branch. Shortly after this, Vincent was informed that he would be transferred to the London branch. The reasons for this are unknown, but one thing is certain. Vincent did not want to leave. He went to London via Paris in May 1873. And while he only stayed in Paris for a few days, he made the most of his time there and toured the Louvre and the Paris Salon, which was an art exhibition. His start in London was smooth in the beginning. He was invited to dinners with customers of the London branch. And to his mother's pleasure, he had bought himself a top hat and started attending church again. What's more, there was plenty of art to see in London. 
with one of Vincent's first stops being the National Gallery. It didn't take long, however, for the loneliness and isolation of a foreign land to turn to despair, which was fuelled in part by Vincent's attraction and subsequent rejection of his landlady's daughter. Perhaps it was because of this rejection that Vincent bombarded the now-married Caroline Heimbach with letters. As with other times that we will see, Vincent's outpouring of emotions when it came to love could be strange, impulsive, and at times extreme. Vincent's parents were, by this time, starting to worry about him, which led to arguments between them. And by late 1874, Vincent was refusing to send letters to his parents. He had even refused to write to his mother on her birthday. One of the reasons for Vincent's silence, it seems, was that his father and Uncle Sent had arranged for Vincent to be temporarily transferred to the Paris branch of Goupil, which he did in October, and by January 1875 he was back in London. When he was back in London, he set back to work, but was plagued with problems almost immediately. His strange personality was impacting his work, and to make matters worse, the final payment for Vincent's draft replacement was becoming due which placed excessive strain on the family's finances. After being back in London for a few months in May, Vincent was told that he was going to be transferred again to the Paris branch. Vincent's strange ways had meant that his bosses had lost confidence in him. Transferring him to Paris was a simple way to get rid of him. Vincent arrived in Paris in May. He had become more deeply religious during his time in London, and this seems to have deepened during his time in Paris. He was collecting religious images and reading the Bible and other religious texts every day. On Sundays, he would make it his mission to visit as many churches as he could, which he did with his housemate and fellow employee of Goupil, Harry Gladwell. Harry was one of the few friends Vincent ever made. On the 23rd of December, Vincent left Paris to see his parents for Christmas, which he had defied his bosses by doing. The Christmas period was the busiest time for the art dealer, and they needed Vincent there. When Vincent arrived back in Paris on the 4th of January, he was fired. Vincent wasn't entirely surprised by this. His desertion against his boss's wishes was likely just the tipping point that led to his dismissal. His bosses referenced the numerous customer complaints about him and the previous disciplinary actions against him in their justification. Vincent's sacking brought shame on the Van Gogh family. His parents expressed their disappointment in him and did not hide the fact that they thought he had brought all of this on himself. Vincent's father attempted to get Vincent a job at Vincent Uncle Cor's bookshop, but Uncle Cor refused to give Vincent a job because he was too much trouble. To make matters worse, Vincent's friend moved out of the boarding house Vincent was staying in. Vincent was all alone. He wasn't sure what to do next, but he happened upon the idea of teaching in England after reading a novel by George Eliot. Vincent read the English newspapers in Paris and he applied to all the teaching posts he could. 
he was rejected by them all. But shortly, at the end of March, he received a letter offering him an unpaid position in Ramsgate. He travelled to Eton to face his parents before travelling to England. Vincent arrived in England in 1876, and two months later, when the school in Ramsgate moved to London, Vincent walked the 75-some miles from Ramsgate to London instead of taking the steamboat for just pennies. As with his earlier life, Vincent seemed to enjoy the solitude of his long walks. It wasn't long before Vincent started to dislike his job at Ramsgate, and in June, Vincent either left his job or was fired. In July, Vincent had got a new job at a school in Isleworth, run by the Reverend Thomas Slade Jones. One of his duties there was to do house visits to six children. Despite the new job, Vincent still wasn't happy. He felt lonely, isolated and directionless. His mother predicted that he would not stay in this job long. She was right. Shortly after getting this new job, Vincent became convinced that he had found his calling. He was going to become a preacher. After all, he was obsessed with religion and the Bible. Around Christmas, he went to his parents. Instead of a warm welcome, Vincent arrived to criticisms of himself. His parents were angry at him for failing to hold down a job. His family shunned the idea of becoming a pastor, despite his father being a minister. They argued that Vincent wouldn't be good enough. He didn't have the capacity to study for it. Instead of allowing Vincent to become a preacher, his father forced him to get a job in a bookseller in the town of Deutrecht. With a pattern that was typical of Vincent, he took to this new job with zeal. He was happy to be busy and he said that he was glad to not be a burden to his parents anymore. It didn't take long for Vincent to retreat from this state of mind and to become withdrawn. His employer at the bookstore thought that Vincent was next to useless. He had taken to translating the Bible at work from Dutch to French, English and German. His parents were starting to worry again that Vincent would lose another job. They were hearing reports of his determination to become a preacher, which led to them softening their forbidding of it. In May, after persuading his parents that he really meant it, that he really wanted to become a preacher, he set off for Amsterdam to stay with his Uncle Jan, where he was going to prepare for his theological entrance exams. Again, Vincent gave his all to this new direction. He was studying as hard as he could. His first task was to get into university, which required taking exams. Vincent was told that it typically took two years to study to pass these exams, but Vincent thought he could do it faster. He studied from daybreak to pass nightfall every day, only taking a single day off a week, during which time he would repeat his habit from Paris of visiting as many churches and church services as possible. Vincent had found, despite his efforts, things did not come easy for him. After over a year of this intense activity, he gave up and abandoned the plan. 
it's unclear why he did this. Some biographers have claimed that he failed his entrance exams. Some have claimed that he just simply gave up. It was July 1878 when he decided instead to become an evangelical missionary, for which he left Amsterdam and went home to his parents. It's likely that the reason Vincent went home was in an attempt to make amends with his brother Theo, with whom he was not on speaking terms because of arguments in March, in which Vincent appears to express bitter jealousy for Theo's smooth journey to success when compared to Vincent's constant struggles. It's almost certain that the reason Vincent went home was not to face the shameful disappointment of his parents. Vincent's abandoning of his studies led to a long-lived rift between him and his father. Exasperation perhaps best describes the feeling of his parents towards him. Doris, Vincent's father, arranged for Vincent to interview at an evangelical school in Brussels. They went together to Brussels for the interview. The school offered Vincent a three-month trial, which would lead to a three-year programme if Vincent completed it successfully. By this point, Vincent's parents had completely lost any sense of faith that they had in Vincent. When he left for Brussels, they expressed no confidence in Vincent's ability to succeed at this new endeavour. They expected him to fail again. And they were right. During Vincent's trial, it was clear that he was deeply unpopular. He was hostile and withdrawn with his peers. When another student made fun of him, Vincent hit them. He was not popular with those who ran the school either. They reported that Vincent did not display any signs of diligence. His parents were completely ashamed of him. They did their best to prevent anyone finding out about yet another of Vincent's failures. Vincent himself was despondent. He had failed again. This crushing blow appears to have sent Vincent into a deep depression. He wasn't eating or sleeping. And he looked so sick and ill that his landlord wrote to his parents and urged them to pick him up. Vincent wanted to escape. His father had offered to pay his rent as Vincent had no money coming in. But he refused. At some point during this period, Vincent came up with a new idea. This time, he would go to the mining area of the Bonriage. He had read about the Belgian area and was inspired by the reported religiosity of the poverty-stricken miners there. His father had gone to Brussels to pick him up and take him home, when Vincent then left suddenly for the Bonriage. His father may have met Vincent when he arrived at Brussels, or Vincent may have left before he arrived. The Bonriage was a bleak area in the summer, but it was bleaker still when Vincent arrived in the middle of winter. He had no contacts there, no job, no prospects, not even a place to stay. Almost to mirror his state of mind, the landscape of the Bonriage was dark, with black slag heaps mounded all around. When it snowed, the snow became a dirty grey. Vincent arrived in the Bonriage 
uncharacteristically well-dressed and found temporary accommodation with a local businessman. A few weeks later, in January 1879, Vincent managed to secure a position from the local congregation as a preacher on a six-month trial. As a preacher, he was required to speak sermons and visit the people living in the area. As we have seen previously with each of Vincent's new ventures, he threw himself into this with a fervent enthusiasm. He started teaching the local children and earnestly visited the sick. He also visited the Marcas mine, descending into the pit. What he saw down there horrified him and he thought it was like an underground prison. Vincent felt empathy for the down and out of the bombriage. In service of this, he ate very little and let his clothes become worn and tattered. He is even reported to have given his bed away to a poor family. Despite this, Vincent was not popular in the area. The number of people attending his sermons quickly fell. His parents were again starting to worry about him. His father expected problems to arise any day. Vincent appears to have initially responded to this unpopularity by doubling down on his religious zeal and efforts with the local people. He visited more sick people, he worked day and night, and seemed to neglect himself more and more. Those in the congregation started to become concerned about him. Vincent had moved into a dank little shack, and they thought that this was not fitting accommodations for a preacher. His lack of hygiene, his dirty tattered clothes, and his thin, sallowed face following his self-imposed near starvation only exacerbated their concerns. In February, scarcely a month after having arrived, Vincent's father rushed to the Bomriage out of worry for his son. He found Vincent lying in a straw-filled sack on the floor of his shack. He took him to see the congregation who had given him the trial position, in the hopes of talking some sense into him. Vincent made promises during this meeting that he would look after himself more. By July, the congregation had decided to end Vincent's appointment. He had failed again. Vincent returned home to his parents in Eton for a brief while. While he was there, he was severely withdrawn. Barely speaking and spending most of his time immersed in reading Dickens. His parents' concern only grew and his father thought that Vincent should be sectioned and sent to a mental institution in Giel. With proof of his madness being his opting for a life of poverty and suffering. Vincent refused to go. Not long after, he returned to the Bomriage, to the town of Quesma, where he found lodgings with a local miner. The house where he stayed is today a museum in his honour. Perhaps the only good thing to emerge from Vincent's time at the Bomriage was that he had started creating more works of art. Art was central to Vincent's life for a long time. In London he had visited the National Gallery and he always visited museums with paintings. Every room he stayed in would be filled with art prints that he would collect. 
One of the few times Vincent ever impressed his father was with his knowledge of paintings. It was during his time at Amsterdam when he first exhibited an artwork of his creation. It was a red chalk drawing, and during the time at the Bon Riage, he found inspiration in the landscape and the people. It was during the second visit to the Bon Riage when a new idea formed in Vincent's mind. He was going to become an artist. Vincent returned to live with his parents in April 1881. It is from this year when the first paintings by Vincent are dated. As we have seen time and again with him, he takes to his new occupations with an extraordinary enthusiasm. Art was no exception. While in Eton, inspired by the painter Millet, whose paintings of ordinary peasants Vincent admired, he took to painting the people of Eton. He would walk the streets and fields looking for subjects, often offering a small amount of money to people he wanted to paint. In August, Vincent's cousin, Ki Voss, came to visit. Ki was recently widowed and had an eight-year-old son. Vincent had not seen or corresponded to Ki in over three years, so it came as a complete surprise to everyone when he suddenly declared his love for her. He didn't just declare that he loved her, he asked her to marry him. She didn't just say no. She shouted, never, no, never. Not long after, she returned to Amsterdam. Instead of treating Key's vehement rejection as final, Vincent seems to have taken it as a challenge to overcome. He started sending her letters, every day. He was relentless, but he couldn't convince her. In a letter to Theo, Vincent had stated that he thought if he could make a thousand guilders a year, that might change her mind. To this end, Vincent left for The Hague in an effort to sell his paintings. He visited as many people as he could, anyone who might be able to sell his paintings. One of the people Vincent met at The Hague was his cousin, Anton Mauve, who was a successful painter with his own studio. Anton supported Vincent's dream. They toured the studio together and discussed artists and paintings with Anton recommending the use of new materials like charcoal. Vincent found that Anton also admired his favourite painter, Millet. Vincent wrote later that Anton gave him the courage when he needed it. Anton also gave Vincent an invitation to return to the studio after a few months. Vincent returned to his parents' house in Eton, convinced he had, at long last, found his career and his calling. It seemed that Vincent had turned over a new leaf. Except, of course, that Vincent was still pursuing Key Voss with an impassioned intensity. Things got heated when Key Voss's father had to get involved. Her father wrote to Vincent and told him that she had said no and that should be the end of it. He told Vincent to stop writing to his daughter. Instead of listening to this, Vincent doubled down on his letter-writing campaign, but this time he also started writing to Key's parents. Vincent demanded in these letters that he be allowed to court Key for a year, because in that year he would prove that the two were made for each other, 
Remember, when this started a few months ago, Vincent had not seen or spoken to Key for three years before he immediately declared his love for her. This then led to the dispute heading to court. But even that couldn't stop Vincent. His uncle Sent got involved and tried to convince Vincent to stop, but that was no good. Then his parents got involved. They were embarrassed by him and they tried to make him stop completely. This had no effect. After all this, Vincent had decided the only thing for it was to show up unannounced in Amsterdam. Only that could convince her that he loved her. But there was a problem. Vincent had no money. To remedy that, he started asking his brother Theo to send him money so he could win over Kivos. In the meantime, things heated up in the Van Gogh household between Vincent and his parents over Vincent's relentless pursuit of Kivos. Vincent nearly kicked out of the house. Vincent's father said to him, You're killing me. After hearing about the state of things between Vincent and his parents, Theo decided that it might be best to give Vincent the money to go to Amsterdam. Vincent arrived at the house Key, her son and her parents lived at at dinner time one night. He rang the doorbell and was ushered in by a servant. The family was having dinner and Key wasn't there, but Vincent was convinced that she was. He demanded that he be allowed to see her. He started an argument with her father and squared up to him. But either Key wasn't there or her father didn't give up. Vincent left and came back the following night. Again, Key was nowhere to be seen. Her family argued with Vincent and they called his persistence disgusting. He begged to see her, if only for a few minutes. He was told no. And then he held his hand over a naked candle flame and begged to be allowed to see her, only as long as he could hold his hand over the flame which was burning his skin. This horrified her family. Someone eventually blew out the candle and Vincent was forced to leave with a burned hand that scarred for months. But he still came back the next night and he still wasn't allowed to see her. Finally. After all this, he gave up. For a while following this, Vincent thought of killing himself, but he decided instead to devote himself to his work. Vincent left Amsterdam and headed to The Hague in the hope that Anton Moe's invitation from a few months ago was still open. Without forewarning, Vincent arrived at Anton's door in The Hague Vincent ended up staying around the corner from Anton's studio. Vincent's mission now was to make a living from his paintings. Vincent, who had only a year previously been attempting to be a pastor, renounced religion and claimed to have become an atheist, which may have been an attempt to antagonise his father. His father had resolved to get Vincent from The Hague, as he thought that Vincent could not be left alone. On Christmas Day 1881, Vincent refused to enter a church for the service that day. This caused another heated argument between Vincent and his parents, which culminated with his father kicking him out of the house for good. 
The whole saga, starting with Kivos, had left Vincent estranged and abandoned by his family. From his immediate family, he only had his brother Theo, who did not abandon him. Vincent headed back to The Hague. He borrowed money from Anton in order to rent a room, which he did, but he also managed to spend all of the money in less than a week. This led Vincent to ask Theo for money. Theo was to be Vincent's main source of income for the rest of his life. Anton was acting as a teacher in kind to Vincent and had recommended that Vincent learn to paint watercolours as they sold well. Vincent hated watercolours, however. He couldn't seem to make them work. This is not that surprising. When Vincent was studying painting in Paris a few years later, the other students mocked him for the intense fury with which he attacked canvases. Watercolours require much more of a delicate technique. Sometime in January 1882, Vincent hired an old woman as a model for his art. Anton thought that this was a bad idea and that Vincent should study instead from plaster cast models. This suggestion caused an argument between the two men. It ended a few weeks later when Vincent threw Anton's plaster casts across the room. Anton threw Vincent out of his studio. It wasn't the only argument that Vincent was to get into during his time in The Hague. It seems that he fought with almost everyone. He managed to fight with his old boss from the art dealer he used to work at. Vincent had gone to his old boss, Terstig, with a request to borrow money. When Terstig visited Vincent's rooms, an argument quickly erupted between the two. During the course of the argument, Terstig told Vincent that his art was unsaleable. In March, when his uncle Cor visited, Vincent quickly ended up arguing with him too. Perhaps in an effort to defuse the situation, Cor offered Vincent what was likely his first commission. In May, Theo received a letter from Vincent in which Vincent stated that he had fallen in love with a pregnant prostitute and that he intended to marry her. Her name was Cien Hornick. This relationship led to tensions between Vincent and his brother. Theo questioned. Vincent's sanity. Theo visited Vincent in August and urged him not to marry Sien. In July the next year, Vincent was still living with Sien and her child. He was also heavily in debt and was receiving frequent visits from debt collectors. He begged his brother for more money. Theo obliged and sent him 50 guilders. Vincent seems to have taken this money and used it to buy a new easel as opposed to paying down his debts. In September, Vincent ended things with Sien. He thought that they both made each other unhappy. A few days later, Vincent left The Hague and headed for a new place to live, Drenth. Drenth was not at all like the paradise Vincent had imagined in his mind. He was only there for a few months, and during his time there, he mainly painted on the moors and wrote to Theo. Vincent sunk into a dark depression. He was again isolated and alone. He tried without success to convince Theo to quit his job in Paris, 
and come and live with him. In December, Vincent left Drenth and headed to live with his parents, who by now lived in a town called Nguyen. The relationship between Vincent and his parents was still embittered. Vincent immediately started an argument with his father as soon as he arrived home. He felt his father should apologise for kicking him out of the house on Christmas Day, two years previously. A few years later, in January 1884, Vincent's mother broke her hip while getting off a train. Vincent reacted to this by taking care of her for the next two months, which went some way to relieve the tension in the house. During the summer, Vincent spent the time painting with his friend Anton van Rappard, but Vincent had also become more than friendly with his neighbour, Margot Bergman. This relationship was initially kept secret until one of Margot's sisters found out and informed the rest of her family. They were furious. They thought that Margot's relationship with the man who fancies himself a painter and is always broke would ruin the family name. Vincent responded to this by saying that he would marry Margot. Margot's family were horrified at the idea and they surmised that this clearly meant that she was pregnant. Their response to this was to immediately arrange to have Margot sent away as to protect the family name. Vincent and Margot met for one last time a few days later. Margot was weak and faint when they met. She fell to the ground and convulsed. She had taken strychnine in an attempt to end her life. Vincent took her to a doctor. She survived, but her family persisted in sending her away. Yet another blow to Vincent van Gogh. Vincent was to spend the next few months painting, where he suffered yet another blow. He had gone on a painting trip with Anton van Rappard, when the two had a falling out, which seems to have been brought on by Vincent's relentless criticism. Vincent's parents again worried about their son. There seemed to be nothing that would go his way. They seemed to blame him, and this caused constant arguments for a few months, until in March 1885, Vincent's father died. He died from a stroke, and there were some who implicated Vincent because of the stress he had caused his father. He was buried on Vincent's birthday. In the midst of this seemingly never-ending series of misfortunes, there was a single ray of hope. Theo had offered to submit a painting of Vincent's to the Salon in Paris. The Salon was an important opportunity for Vincent, and he was painting with a manic frenzy. It was during this time in Nguyen that some of the most famous early paintings from Vincent are dated. Perhaps the most well-known example is the Potato Eaters, which he created sometime around April 1885. At this point in his life, he was painting in a realist style, and the Potato Eaters is typical of his works in this period. It depicts a bleak group of peasants eating a meal, sat around a table in a darkened room. It was this painting that Vincent wanted to submit to the Salon. The following March, Vincent moved to Paris. His decision to move was quick. 
he left a series of unpaid bills in his wake, and he surprised his brother Theo by inviting him to meet at the Louvre. Theo and Vincent soon got an apartment together. He had three bedrooms, one for Theo, one for Vincent, and one for Vincent's studio. Vincent's time in Paris showed signs that things were starting to go well for him. He'd got new clothes, new teeth, and he was finally living with his brother. Vincent also joined Ferdinand Corman's studio, where he could learn to better hone his skills as a painter. However, the intensity with which Vincent approached paintings and his short temper soon caused problems. At the slightest indication of criticism, Vincent would kick off an angry storm of protests, often in several languages at once. As might be expected, this didn't exactly endear him to his fellow students. And as mentioned earlier, Vincent was mocked by the other students for his furious approach to painting. Vincent's output in Paris was very high. He produced painting after painting after painting. There are many self-portraits from this period. Even given this output, he had still not sold a single painting. Vincent, at Theo's insistence, had started creating works in the Impressionist style, which he initially didn't like, but he did so in hopes of making a sale. A year after being in Paris, Vincent organised an exhibition of his collection of Japanese prints at the Café du Tambourin, where Vincent frequently frequented, often swapping paintings for meals. One such painting may have been the painting Vincent created of Agostina from this period. The owner of the café was Agostina Segatori, and around the time that Theo told Vincent he had planned to leave Paris and marry a lady called Jo Bonga, Vincent appears to have made several advances towards Agostina. Agostina appears to have initially been kind to Vincent, but she resisted his advances. This led to a dramatic scene in the café where a fight broke out between Vincent and likely the manager of the café when they tried to eject Vincent. Vincent ran off, covered in blood. Shortly after this, Theo returned. Joe Bonga had rejected his marriage proposal. In November, Vincent organised another exhibition, this time at the Grand Bouillon Restaurant du Chalet. The exhibition was of Impressionist paintings and included roughly a hundred of Vincent's own works. It did not go well. Part of the reason there were so many of Vincent's own paintings is that he struggled to convince any other artist to join. A few weeks after the exhibition was first opened, Vincent got into a disagreement with the owner of the restaurant, which ended with the restaurant owner ordering Vincent and the paintings out. Seemingly without warning, Vincent left Paris in February 1888. He seems to have had many reasons for leaving the city, but perhaps artistic inspiration was the biggest of all of them. Yet at some point, formed the idea in his mind of an artistic commune where he and other artists could work and live. And for Vincent, the place this was to be was Arles, a city in the south of France. Vincent got a room above the restaurant Carol. 
Vincent spent his early days in Arles trying to find paintings to buy and sell, painting himself and writing to Theo in the hopes that he would come and live with him. Two months later, in April, Vincent got into an argument with the landlord of the rooms he was staying in. This led for him to search for somewhere else to live. And that's when he found it. The Yellow House. When he found it, it was boarded up, run down and barely maintained. It certainly wouldn't have been described as appealing. But for Vincent, it was a dream come true. This would be the place that he would form his artistic commune. He quickly signed the lease for the place and set about ordering renovations. In the meantime, he got into another argument with his landlord of the rooms, with Vincent refusing to pay his rent and the landlord taking Vincent's possessions as collateral. Vincent ended up renting other rooms above a cafe while the yellow house was being worked on. At the same time, Vincent was trying to convince other artists to come and live with him in the yellow house. One such artist was Paul Gauguin, whom Vincent had met in Paris. Gauguin was a much more successful artist than Vincent during their lifetimes, and Vincent appears to have looked up to and admired him. Initially, Gauguin responded to Vincent's invitation in uncertain terms. At one point, he seemed to indicate that he would come, and then in June, he indicated that he might never come. This disappointment caused Vincent to sink into a depression, during which time he shaved his head, and this can be seen in one of his self-portraits from the time. Gauguin eventually agreed to come to Arles and live in the Yellow House with Vincent. The way that Vincent convinced him was by saying they would both share the 250 francs that Theo would send them every month in exchange for a painting from each of them. Theo would then attempt to sell the paintings and split the profits with them. Gauguin arrived in the early hours of the 23rd of October 1888. He hadn't let Vincent know he was coming, and as it was so early he just went to a local cafe, where the owner of the cafe recognised him, because Vincent had been there previously talking about Gauguin and showing off a portrait of him. In no time at all, Gauguin had sent a painting back to Theo, and Theo sold it almost immediately for a large amount of money. Theo sent Gauguin 500 francs for this, which was more money than he had ever sent Vincent in one go. Vincent may have been jealous about this, as at this point he had not sold any paintings himself. By November, Theo had sold two more paintings of Gauguin's, but none of Vincent's. This was the month, however, that Vincent would paint the Red Vineyard, which is debatably the only painting Vincent ever sold during his lifetime. But that wasn't to happen until early 1890. Towards the end of November, despite creating and selling several paintings, and irrespective of his short stay, Gauguin was planning to leave. Vincent appears to have sensed this in him, and became fearful and paranoid that Gauguin would leave. This may have led to their explosive arguments, which punctuated the next month, until it all came to a head on the 23rd of December, 1888. Several days of disastrous weather had kept Paul and Vincent cooped up together in the Yellow House, 
the mood was sour and tense. Gauguin's short time in the Yellow House had made him somewhat fearful of Vincent, whom he had started to regard as a madman. He was worried that Vincent might attack him. In a letter, he wrote that he had been living with his nerves on edge. On the evening of the 23rd, Gauguin left the Yellow House. Vincent ran after him and caught up with him in a park. Vincent asked if Gauguin was really leaving, and Gauguin said he was. Vincent then handed him a newspaper, pointing out an article about an escaped killer on the loose in the area, and then left, headed back to the house. It's unclear exactly why Vincent did this. Perhaps it was to scare Gauguin into coming back to the house. Gauguin did not return. Instead, he went to the local brothel. It's even more unclear why Vincent did what he did next, and no one knows exactly what happened. But after returning to the yellow house, Vincent took a straight razor and hacked off his left ear, slashing his face in the process. We know he lost a lot of blood, so it's even more surprising that he managed to dress the wound he had just formed, wash his severed ear, wrap it up in a newspaper, cover his injury with a beret, and then walk out into the night to find the brothel that Gauguin was at. When he arrived at the brothel, he asked for Gabby, who was a prostitute, whose real name was Rachel, and who was Gauguin's favourite. He wasn't allowed in, so he handed the wrapped newspaper with his ear inside to the man on the door and asked that it be handed to Gauguin, who he was sure was inside, with the message, Remember me. Vincent somehow managed to make it back to the Yellow House, likely expecting to die. The police found him at the Yellow House. It may have been Gauguin who sounded the alarm. The police took him to the local hospital and left him there. Gauguin wrote to Theo, who had just become engaged to Joe Bonga, after he asked her to marry him for the second time. On the evening of Christmas Eve, Theo caught the train to rush down to Arles to see Vincent. But then, 12 hours after he arrived in Arles, and had seen Vincent, he was on his way back to Paris. This may have been because Theo felt that there was nothing he could do for Vincent after having seen him, which he had noted in a letter to his bride-to-be. When Vincent had regained consciousness, he was reported to ramble in a mix of French and Dutch. The doctor assigned to him was Dr Ray, and shortly after Vincent's admission, Someone had handed him Vincent's ear, but by that point, it was too late to reattach. By the 7th of January, 1889, Vincent was deemed well enough to be discharged. He returned to the Yellow House, where he suffered with delusions and depression. But in spite of this, he continued to paint. At least twice during the two months after his discharge, did the police come and take Vincent away from the yellow house? In one instant, they chained him to a hotel bed. The townspeople of Arles had organised a witch hunt against Vincent, 
and they created a petition to have the red-headed madman either sent back to his family or to a mental institution. The police came again and took Vincent from the Yellow House. He was kept at the Hotel Dieu. He was regarded as a dangerous lunatic. He wasn't allowed to paint. And by April, he had moved back to the hospital. And by June, Vincent had decided voluntarily to enter a mental asylum. He had chosen an asylum in Saint-Rémy, and he arrived there on the 8th of May, 1889. Vincent found solace in the asylum. Shortly after arriving, he said, I feel at peace. The doctor at the asylum, Dr. Peron, had initially diagnosed Vincent with acute mania and generalised delirium. Dr. Ray had at the hospital at Arles diagnosed Vincent with a type of epilepsy, not a type associated with physical seizures, but mental ones. Dr. Ray thought this would explain his reported hallucinations. Dr. Ray had passed this information to Dr. Perron, who agreed with his diagnosis. After arriving in Arles, Vincent's painting style changed to what today is categorised as post-impressionism. The vast majority of his most famous works are from the period after his arrival in Arles in 1888 to his death in 1890. It was early on in his time in the asylum that Vincent painted from his room there one of his most famous paintings, The Starry Night. Some have argued that Vincent's condition with his hallucinations may have played a role in his vision for this painting. Vincent had made a lot of progress at the asylum with Dr. Perron, and he had painted a lot there. He was soon allowed to go on day trips to paint, although he was always occupied by a warden. It was on one of these day trips that Vincent suffered a major relapse after his easel and canvas were blown over by the wind. What followed was a period of darkness for Vincent. He wasn't allowed to paint and he suffered bouts of attacks of hallucinations, dizziness, amnesia and anxiety. Each attack brought additional constrictions and confinements until he was locked in his room, strapped to the bed. After some time he was allowed to paint once more but he had to ask permission each time. But then he was caught drinking kerosene from a lamp and eating his paint from their tubes. The doctors considered this a suicide attempt and prevented him again from painting, which Vincent found agonising. By September, his condition had settled down and he was once again allowed to paint, but only under strict supervision at all times. Despite entering the asylum voluntarily, Vincent was beginning to consider himself a prisoner within its walls and he began to think about a plan to escape. The staff at the asylum were likely unaware of this as in October Vincent was allowed out on day trips again. In January 1890 Vincent was still in the asylum when Albert Aurier published an article in an art magazine which praised Vincent as a genius. 
Vincent was certainly aware of this, as he had wrote to Theo about it. January also saw what was arguably the only sale of one of his paintings. The Red Vineyard, which Vincent had painted shortly after arriving in Arles in 1888, was sold to Anna Buck for 400 francs. In spite of this backdrop of finally starting to get recognition for his work, Vincent suffered another relapse in February. He had been allowed to visit Arles, but during the visit, he was found wandering about, dazed and confused, at which point he was taken back to the asylum. It was over a month before Vincent had improved, but by this time, his recovery went so well that by May, Dr. Perron had declared that Vincent was cured and he was allowed to leave the asylum. He left straight for Paris and arrived at Theo and now Joe Bonga's apartment, which was filled with many of Vincent's own paintings. But then, only a few days later, he left Paris and caught a train to Ouvert which is just north of Paris. He likely did this at Theo's suggestion that he stay near the care of a doctor. Dr. Gatchet was a doctor that had come recommended for his previous treatment of other artists. Vincent had used his newfound freedom to paint more. Nouvelle, he was getting up at 5am each morning and working on his paintings as much as possible. In June, a letter from Vincent's mother arrived in which she told him how she had visited his father's grave on the fifth anniversary of his death. The letter left Vincent racked with guilt. When his father had died, some had argued that his behaviour has brought about his father's death. Vincent expressed deep sadness and loneliness around this time. Vincent did meet a new friend around this time a 19-year-old called Gaston, who wanted to be an artist. Along with Gaston was his younger brother René, who openly mocked Vincent. Vincent took to calling René Buffalo Bill for his cowboy costume that had a real revolver. Vincent died not long after, on the 29th of July, 1890. And the story of his death is shrouded in mystery. In the beginning of this episode, I used the phrase apparent suicide to describe Vincent's death. The reason for this is while the common belief about Vincent is that he killed himself, we actually don't know this for certain, as we will now explore. On the 27th of July, Vincent walked out of town with an easel and a canvas around midday after lunch in order to paint. Six hours later, Vincent arrives back clutching his stomach and not carrying anything. He had been shot. No one knows what happened in the six hours between him leaving to paint and his return. Vincent never told the story. In some of the things he said after coming back, the theory of a botched suicide emerges, but it's not the only possible conclusion. On his return, he sought medical assistance and continually passed in and out of consciousness. And he was unable to clearly say what happened. One witness to this would only years later recount 
that Vincent had admitted to having shot himself in the fields with a revolver. When the police arrived and asked Vincent if he attempted to kill himself, he was reported to have replied, Yes, I believe so. But there are no police records of this. When Dr. Gatchett showed up, Vincent refused to give him Theo's address in Paris so Theo could be informed about what happened. Dr. Gatchett then decided to travel to Paris himself to find Theo and bring him to Ouvert. When Theo arrived, he did not see any evidence that Vincent had planned to kill himself. That, of course, doesn't mean that he didn't attempt it. Especially given Vincent's often rash decisions in the past. Just after one in the morning, on July the 29th, 1890, Vincent van Gogh died in his brother's arms. His last reported words were, I want to die like this. He was 37 years old. The theory of Vincent's death at the hands of another came from several key issues in the suicide story. The first is that the gun was never found. Now there is an immediate caveat to this story in that there is a claim the gun was found, but it wasn't until 1965, 75 years after Vincent died. This gun was sold at auction for €162,500 in Paris in 2019. But there is no concrete evidence linking the gun to Vincent. Not only was the gun not found near the time, but Vincent's easel and canvas he was working on were not found either, which may suggest a third party. The other problem with the gun is that we don't know where he got it if indeed he did have it. No one ever admitted to selling him, giving him or loaning him a gun. The choice to shoot himself in the stomach is also strange, although not implausible. There was a study by DiMaio which showed out of 464 gunshot suicides, only 2% were wounded in the chest or abdomen. Stephen Nafer and Gregory White Smith propose in their theory of Vincent's death that he was shot by René and it was likely an accident. Ultimately, we'll never know. This story just adds to the mystery of Vincent van Gogh, the tortured genius. After Vincent's death, Theo's syphilis, which he had contracted several years earlier, got worse. Theo died sometime in January 1891, only months after his brother, and he was buried next to Vincent in Ouvert. In looking back at the life of Vincent van Gogh, it's hard to imagine the pain he endured throughout his life, from his early feelings of abandonment from his parents' decision to send him to Jan Provley's school, to his exiled isolation to London after his initial failure at his first job. Vincent's life was marked by a constant stream of failures, of his isolation and loneliness. His failed attempt to convince Kivos to marry him shows a tragic but almost comic delusion on his part. But we also see in this his relentless determination and work ethic. When he found art, he took to it with a powerful lust, 
Even after the complete commercial failure of his works during his lifetime, he still produced art. Even after he had cut off his own ear and been driven out of town by the local people, he produced art. Even during his time in an asylum, he still produced art. The Starry Night, one of the most outstanding artistic visions of the 20th century, was produced from an asylum. Vincent van Gogh is for many the archetype of the tortured genius. If only he could see today the world's adoration for his works. If only he could see how his legacy endures as one of the best-selling, most loved, recognisable figures in the history of art. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Enduring Lives podcast. If you want to see the other episodes or see the show notes for this episode, go to EnduringLives.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe if you want to get the latest episodes when they're released. I've been your host, Shane Lee. Thank you for listening. Until next time.